If you turn to John chapter 20, we'll begin with verse 19 in John chapter 20. We've been looking at the events surrounding the resurrection of Christ from all four Gospels, and today we should finish John chapter 20. Our focus will be on verses 24 through 31, but we'll begin in verse 19 to look at what we saw last week and also set the context. Please hear the word of God as I read, starting in verse 19 of John chapter 20. Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, or even locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, or locked, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God, and may, may God by his Spirit teach us and convict us according to his will. You may be seated. As I said, we're embarking, or have embarked, on a short series of sermons that are combining the four Gospels to see all of the accounts of all of the events surrounding the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ being the most important event in history. And we saw in the very beginning in Matthew chapter 28, we saw the evidence and the trustworthiness of the resurrection with all that was going around to, to keep it from happening, but vain the watch and the stone and the seal. The Romans and Jewish leaders could not keep the resurrection from happening, if you will. Then we saw in John chapter 20, in the first 10 verses, we saw the nature and first fruits of the resurrection of Christ. As Peter and John came to the tomb, it was empty except for the cloths. They were still there indicating that Christ had risen in a glorified body as the first fruit of our resurrection. And then we saw in verses 11 through 18 in John chapter 20 that there are new relationships that result from this resurrection. We have a new father. We have new brothers. The Spirit of God comes into the believer and there's a spiritual adoption into God's family. When we saw that from Jesus meeting with Mary, the first appearance that he gives after his resurrection. 
Then we saw in Luke chapter 24, we looked basically the entire chapter, we saw the two disciples, not one of the original 12, but the two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus, confused, and Jesus appears to them, and he shows to us the centrality of the scriptures, and the centrality of Christ in the scriptures, as he could have just said, here I am, but he said, look at me in the scriptures, before he reveals himself to them at the end of their meeting. And then last week, we saw verses 19 through 23 in John chapter 20, and we saw Jesus' appearance to the disciples, the 12, of which there were only 10 there at the time. Thomas was gone, and and Judas is no longer one of them. And we saw the peace, the spirit, the sending, and the keys of the resurrected Christ. Christ came with subjective and objective peace through his atonement, his propitiation, his justification, his reconciliation, And by the power of the Spirit, he sends his church with the keys of the kingdom, with the gospel of peace, to unlock hearts to the gospel, but unlock the kingdom to receive sinners who are now redeemed. And so today we'll look at the rest of John chapter 20. We just read that. John's account of how Jesus appeared to Thomas. Thomas was wrongly not with the eleven on that first Sunday, the Sunday of the resurrection. But now, at this second Sunday, he will be with them, and Jesus appears to them. He's still doubting the resurrection. As we saw, there's two progressions in verses uh, 24 to the end of the chapter. One progression, I think, is the progression of, of Jesus' identity. Jesus is alive, Jesus is Lord and God, and then Jesus is life itself, which will be the outline that will follow as we look through this passage of Scripture. And that outline should be in your bulletin. But there's also another progression with belief, the idea of belief. First, Thomas is saying, unless I see these things or even handle these things, I will not believe. Jesus then appears and says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then he says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And at the end, we have the theme, really, of John's gospel, as John makes a summary using Thomas, Thomas's account encounter with Jesus. And he says, it's been written then that believing you may have life in his name. And so you have a progression from I will not believe to having life in Jesus' name by believing in him. And we'll look at those two progressions as we go through this passage of Scripture. But again, the main outline that we'll look at is Jesus is alive as he appears to Thomas. Jesus is Lord and God as Thomas professes. But Jesus is life itself as John invites us to have that invitation to come and know this life. So first of all, in verses 24 and 25, we'll see that Jesus is alive. We already knew this. We saw this last week as he appeared to the disciples. Let me read verses 24 and 25 again. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. Jesus is alive. Now when we think about Thomas, we think about doubting Thomas, I think. I guess it's nice to have your name associated with that. But there was some doubt there. But I like how... William Hendrickson, in his commentary, describes Thomas. He gives him a little bit more credit than just being a doubting Thomas. He says Thomas shows a despondency and a devotion. And of course, we like alliteration, so Thomas shows a despondency and a devotion to his Lord. And Hendrickson says this, 
Thomas is ever afraid that he may lose his beloved master, his beloved Lord, or that some evil will befall him, his beloved Lord. Thomas expects evil and cannot believe the good when it occurs. He has a devotion to the Lord, but he has a despondency. It's kind of like droopy. I'm happy. He's always thinking something bad is going to happen and thinks the worst. And maybe you're too young to know who Droopy is, but that's okay. You can look it up tomorrow. There's a couple cases. We don't know that much about Thomas, but there's a couple cases where Thomas speaks that we learn about this in John chapter 11 and John chapter 14. In John chapter 11, verse 16, Thomas speaks. But the context in John chapter 11 is Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he lets him die first. And he has to travel to Judea to go visit him and to visit his sisters. So in John chapter 11, Jesus is insisting to his disciples that we must go to Judea to see Lazarus. But they remember that last time they were in Judea, they tried to stone Jesus. He wasn't welcome there. And so, as you might imagine, the disciples are thinking, maybe we don't want to go to Judea. And with that context... Thomas says this in John chapter 11, verse 16. He says, let us also go, seems courageous, that we may die with him. It's both a devotion to his Lord. Let's go with him. If he's going to go, let's go and we'll die with him. He's assuming the worst is going to happen. He's thinking of his Lord with devotion. So he wants to go with him, but he's despondent. But we'll just die together. It's interesting, he had courage there, but his courage failed him at the cross as he and Peter and all the rest scattered. So that's scene one. Scene two would be in John chapter 14. And John chapter 14 is near the beginning of where Jesus is preparing his disciples for something they don't know it's going to come. And they weren't prepared, even though he did prepare them, because he's preparing them for the cross to come. And in John chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled Believe in God, but believe also in me, showing his unity with the Father and the necessity of belief in him. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again afterwards and receive you to myself, because where I am, you also shall be. I want you with me. And where I go now, the way you know. Where I go now, the way you know. And Thomas, as he's apt to do, He's devoted to his Lord. He can't bear the thought of his Lord leaving, but he's assuming the worst. And in his assuming the worst, he's not understanding. And he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? That's when Jesus responds in this way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and life. Jesus is explaining to Thomas that the way to the Father is the way he's talking about. That's the way he must go. And he is the only way to the Father. And this is the sixth of the seven I am statements in the book of John where Jesus is both claiming that he's God but also taking the labels and metaphors of what he is. And here he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And perhaps at the end of the sermon, we'll look back at that to close in John chapter 14, if there is time. 
So that's Thomas. He was one who was despondent, but yet devoted to his Lord. And so then we look at the twelve. In verse 24, it says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, twelve, although there's only eleven at this time, and a week earlier there was only ten, there's still twelve is like saying the disciples, the apostles, the specific group that Jesus had chosen that would be then the foundation of the church, as we find out later. But it says, He's called the twin, one of the twelve, but he was not with them when Jesus came, and the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. The twelve representing the disciples, of which there's only eleven left, but there's only ten the week before. It's likely in the same room, it's likely, we don't know, but it's likely that the two disciples that were walking to Emmaus would be there. They're not disciples with a capital D, perhaps, but they'd be disciples of Christ. It wouldn't be a surprise if Mary was there and the other women and those who are also followers of Christ and that Christ had appeared to would be with them as they're gathering on a Sunday evening. When John says eight days, he's using inclusive language to say he's including both the first Sunday and the second Sunday. So it's another way of saying on the second Sunday, the second Lord's Day, if you will, after the resurrection, they're gathering again. And Thomas should have been there. Someone once said, if you miss a meeting, you miss a lot. That Thomas should have been there. He missed the joy of seeing the Lord, the Lord who had risen. He missed the joy and the comforts and the helps of the brethren, both him helping his own brethren who were struggling and both them helping him. He missed the hearing of the word of the Lord himself when he came to speak peace. In fact, he missed that peace itself. He was clearly despondent nervous, restless, and grasping, trying to figure out what has happened. His whole world had been shaken, so much so that he'd wandered from his brethren as a disciple as they were gathering on the Lord's day. But what do the disciples do, the other ten? They have devotion to the Lord, and I think they have devotion to Thomas as well, and therefore they declare the Lord to him. And they say, He is risen. We have seen the Lord. They declare this peace of Christ. We saw last week that what Jesus is saying is, I bring you peace. And remember, your mission is that you're to be sent out by the Spirit of God with this peace that I give to others. And there's a sense that they are now taking those keys to the kingdom with Thomas and saying, we've seen the Lord. And you you can only imagine what else they, they say to him. But I'm sure they said, he rose. He really did rise from the dead. As he said... And he came to us with peace and he reminded us of our mission. He challenged us to look and handle his hands and feet. If you remember in Luke's account of when Jesus met with the disciples, Jesus actually appears to them and he says, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. See and even feel if you want. Give me a piece of fish and I'll eat it. It's really me. I have conquered death, sin, and hell. And so the disciples could have told Thomas all of this. He's truly physically risen from the dead and defeated sin, death, and hell. The disciples from the road to Emmaus could have easily said, this is what he taught us in the word. Mary could have said, this is what he said to me. The women, if they were there, could have said, this is, this is what he said to us. And collectively, they should have said, remember what he told us while he was alive the first time. This shouldn't have been a surprise to us. So the twelve declared to Thomas 
that Jesus is risen and all the benefits that come from that. But what does Thomas do? Well, Thomas is not merely a doubting Thomas. He turns into a demanding Thomas, doesn't he? The the stubbornness that is shown here in verse 25, after the disciples say, we've seen the Lord, what does Thomas say? If you could remember what was recorded in, in Luke, in Luke 24, he's actually saying the things that Jesus had said earlier. But with a question or a demand, Jesus said, Look at my hands and feet inside. It's me. Touch. It's me. Thomas says, unless, it's kind of a negative starting point, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. He knows of the crucifixion. People don't be crucified and then show up a week later. And I put my finger into the print of the nails. And I put my hand into his side. It's it's almost gruesome in his, in his obstinance. Else I will not believe, is what he's saying. Thomas is willing to believe, but only, only under his own conditions, only under his own standards. And his default position is, I will not believe this. Hearing would not be enough. It should have been. Even hearing from his brethren, even hearing from the word of God, as the disciples on the road to Emmaus likely would have said. Even remembering the Lord's words themselves, that wasn't enough. He says, I must see and I must feel something to have it be proven to me. And we can be hard on Thomas, but it's just like we are today. Just like the sinner is today. The sinner will refuse to believe Christ unless Christ fits his requirements or his standards that he lays up or refuse to follow God unless they can fit God into to their box and what they want God to be like, else the sinner is not going to follow. We reinterpret the word of God to be what we'd like it to be. There are things maybe in the word that make us uncomfortable. Would God be like that? Well, if his word says so, yes. And there's a reason for it. Maybe in particular for the sinner who who will refuse to come to Christ, he wants to reduce or lessen the true depth of his sin or the depth of his need. I was listening to someone this week who is a professing Christian even, who is denying original sin who's even saying, no, I I had a good heart before I was saved. I wasn't wicked like Romans chapter 1. I had a good heart. I wasn't rebellious like that. I just received forgiveness. The scripture is clear. We are born in sin. Actually, David says, I was conceived in sin. And we have a desperate need for a Savior. You cannot come to Christ unless you recognize your sin and what it deserves before a holy God. Because also we try to reduce who God is by saying, God's not really holy. There's not really a place like hell. That would not be a God I would want to serve. But when we say that, we're saying, God's not as holy as he says. And we reduce God's holiness because we don't want to admit to the depth of our sin either. But you can't be saved unless you understand your sin before the infinite holiness of God. 
And you can't understand then the depth of the love of Christ for sinners that he would then, though he's the son of God, take on flesh and have the humiliation of being a man who would suffer as a man, who would suffer the eternal wrath of God that you would have to suffer in hell and it would never be quenched. But he does that on the cross in the place of his people. If we want to downplay that, then we're reducing God to somebody he's not. We're placing ourselves up into a position that we're not. And we're completely trampling on the love and the mercy and the grace that's been offered then through Christ Jesus. Don't be like a doubting or demanding Thomas. It's one thing to say, no, I believe what the Bible says. I'm just not ready to to take that into consideration yet. No, you don't believe what the Bible says. If, If you believe what the Bible says about God and about yourself and about Christ, you'd crawl across broken glass to the cross of Christ in repentance and faith and say, save me of my sin. You cannot know Christ as Savior and Lord if you do not think you need a Savior. And you cannot be like Thomas who is trying to lord his way and his will over Christ and be saved. You must be willing to submit to Christ as Lord and Savior. So the invitation is to come and to submit yourself and to repent and to believe and to drink deeply from the water of life that only Christ can give and he offers freely. But Jesus is alive and therefore you can be as well. But Jesus is Lord and God. Look at verses 26 through 29. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came, the doors being shut And he stood in the midst, he said, peace to you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think the theme here is Jesus is Lord and God. Even here, there's a progression. First, we see that Jesus appears. The glorified God-man Savior appears. After eight days, he's inside. It's the next Lord's Day. We've seen, even last week, we emphasized how the Lord's Day Sunday has been emphasized. The Gospels, all four of the Gospels make a clear point. This happened on Sunday. Pentecost was on Sunday in Acts chapter 20. When Paul was in Troas, he makes sure he waits until Sunday to to meet with the people of God there. And then he leaves the next day. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, On Sunday, on the first day of the week, when you gather, make this collection for the saints. In Revelation chapter 1, we see that 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 first day of the week is the Lord's Day. So they're meeting on this second resurrection Sunday. Sabbath has been moved to Sunday because there's a new creation and a new rest in Christ that's greater than the old. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in their midst and he said, peace to you. Again, Christ had a finite human body he does for eternity. He's not omnipresent in his his humanity. He's not always there physically, so then to come in his In his humanity, he has to actually come and then stand in the presence of the disciples, but yet he has a glorified body, so there's 
something going on there where he can enter into a closed room. And he did that a week prior. And he brings and speaks peace once again, just like he did the week prior. So he appears in his glorified body. And then he condescends graciously to Thomas. Again, a week prior, Jesus told the disciples, See my hands and feet, see my side, even reach and touch. I'll eat something for you. It's me, it really is me. And then a week later, Thomas says, I will not believe unless I can put my finger here. If I can put my hand here, else I will be unbelieving. And look at the compassionate Savior we have of Christ. He condescends, he already condescended, taking on flesh, but he condescends to Thomas He could have rebuked such obstinate unbelief. He could have rebuked such unsubmissiveness to one who's demanding, this is what I need for me to believe what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Instead, in his compassion, in his graciousness, Jesus repeats basically what he told the disciples a week before. What the disciples already told him. He redid, in a sense, what Thomas missed the previous Lord's Day, answering all of Thomas's questions and demands. It reminds us of the graciousness that God shows Gideon, who is a timid servant in Numbers 6 through 8. A timid servant who kept asking God, well, if this is truly true, then give me this sign, please. I need some more help to make sure this is actually what's going on. And at that point, God would show him the signs that he asked for. That's not a practice you should take on. Don't test God. Believe him. But God is gracious. And here Jesus is a gracious, compassionate Savior. But then we see in verse 28 that Jesus is God. And much like Peter's confession, we have Thomas's confession. He says, my Lord and my God. I don't know if there's any more clear statement of the deity of Christ In the Gospels, my Lord and my God, why would Thomas say this? Well, at one level, it's like Peter when he makes his great confession in Matthew chapter 16, where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the Spirit of God that moved upon his heart to understand that and to say that. Yes, this is going on here, but humanly speaking, Thomas surely had to understand that only God could conquer torture the torture of the cross, death, the sword that was thrust into his side, his burial, the stone, the watch, and the seal. Only the God-man could conquer such a thing. This must be Lord, the Lord and God of all. And only the God-man could bear the infinite sin of man and the infinite wrath of God and be raised and glorified as this man was. Jesus' words and The disciples' words and the word of God must have now resonated in the heart of Thomas. Now I understand this must be the Messiah, Savior, who is God with us, who came to save us from our sins. But I think one thing that's overlooked, why Thomas would say, my Lord and my God, is that the Lord's omniscience was on full display here. The Lord's omniscience, Jesus' omniscience was on full display here. I can't help but think that would be the greatest conviction. Think about what would happen if it was a week prior 
and you're being obstinate and you're digging in. The other disciples are telling you these things. They say, nope, nope, I ain't going to believe. I'm not going to do it. Unless I see the print in the hand, I can put my finger in that print. Unless I see the, the, the wound in the side and I put my hand there, then I will not believe. Unless I see those things, and then imagine you're the same person a week later, the Lord Jesus Christ appears in a shut room who you watch die on the cross and be buried in a tomb. He says, look at the nail prints in my hands. Put your finger in there and touch them. Look at the print in my side. Touch that as well. Do not be unbelieving as you said a week ago, but be believing. And Thomas had to think, how did he know what I said? I said all of that and he's telling me exactly what I said, but now in the positive, this must be my Lord and my God. There's no other way to explain it. He was not there then. And in his deity then, Jesus' omniscience, and in some senses omnipresence, was shown. He knew Thomas's words and he knew his heart. And he brought gentle but clear astonishment to Thomas's unbelief and testing. Don't you think Thomas was also convicted? Oh, yeah, remember what I said last week? I will not believe. But in a gentle way, then Jesus also convicts him of his sin and his stubbornness. And out of that then flows a clear and undeniable confession that Jesus is Lord and God. And he can be your Lord and your God if you'd come to him in salvation. Now the scriptures are clear that Jesus is God. The gospels declare that Jesus is God. If this was not the case, Jesus would have said, Thomas, stop, I'm a mere man. But he received the worship and the declaration that he is indeed God. It reminds us of earlier in John chapter 4 where the Samaritan woman at the well, she went and told her friends and said, I met a man who told me everything I knew. His omniscience proved to me who he was. And earlier in the book of John, in John chapter 1, when Nathanael is being called as a disciple, he's under a fig tree and Jesus greets him and says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael says, how did you know that? As a result, Nathanael says, you are the son of God. Because there's no way you could have known that otherwise. And so Thomas goes from lording it over the Lord Jesus Christ to submitting to him as his Lord and God. Really the theme of John's gospel, at least a theme of John's gospel, is the deity of Christ. If you want to go to one gospel that declares the deity of Christ most clearly, it would be John's gospel. And John uses the idea of Jesus being the Son of God, and he uses several I am passages. Are you familiar with the little phrase, I am? I am is how God describes himself from the burning bush in Exodus to Moses. It means I am. I have no beginning. I have no end. I have no lack. I am Lord God Jehovah. And so when Jesus says, I am, in the book of John, it's meant to say, I am God. And in John eight fifty eight. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And they tried to stone him because they knew what he was saying. 
Just like when he said, I and the Father are one, and they tried to stone him then as well. He's saying, I'm equal with God the Father, but we're different persons. And John likes to use sevens. In the book of John, he has seven I am passages where Jesus uses metaphors to describe himself. He also has seven discourses that he records and seven signs that Jesus gives to prove who he is and what he came for. But with the I am passages, Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He is deity, but he's the bread of life. He's from heaven. He came, and those who come to him will never hunger. Those who believe in him will never hunger or thirst. And if you eat of my bread, if you place your faith in me, you will have life forever. Then in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. I'll manifest my life in you and you'll have new life. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. If you want to enter the kingdom, you come through me to find life. And that abundantly, he says. Still in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. I've given my life for my sheep that they may have life in me. In John chapter 11, dealing with Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, he shall live. And he will live forever and never die. In John chapter 14, as we saw, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But he is the life. And then John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine. In fact, I'm the true vine. If you want to have a life, you have to abide in me and me and you. And you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the I am deity, son of God, son of man in the book of John. And Thomas rightly says, my Lord and my God. Now look at verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus has just said in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And what John does marvelously so, it's kind of odd in John because you have another chapter left. You have the fishing expedition in John chapter 21. You have the restoration of Peter. Well, look at that. But it's almost like John is closing the book here at the end of chapter 20. And maybe the rest of it is added on by somebody else. That's not it. It's just that at this point, he's, he's using what Thomas has, ex, has confessed. And he uses this as a way to bring home the theme of the book and to drive it home to us, the reader, for, forever before he adds on a little bit more at the end. So Thomas has said, he has believed he says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. He's looking forward to those who will come after. And then John says this, as he summarizes his gospel of John, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, Thomas got it. Will you? 
He says later, if we could write down all that Jesus did, that all the books and all the libraries of the world would not have room for it, but I've written the things that are necessary to show by his signs and by his discourses and who he said he was, so you might know and you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, John uses Thomas's confession to summarize the theme of his gospel. And John's gospel, from start to finish, emphasizes Jesus as the incarnate Word, the Son of God, who came as Messiah Savior, who brings eternal life to those who would believe on him. John uses some form of the word believe over a hundred times in his gospel. He's calling us to believe in this, in this Christ. He records seven I am statements about Christ. He records seven miraculous signs that are meant specifically to say who he was. He records seven discourses of Christ to identify Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who as the source of life brings life to those who believe in his name. Look to John chapter 1. I want you to see how John, John's gospel begins in John chapter 1. We have bookends to his gospel. You should be familiar with the opening verses of John in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John writes uniquely to all of the gospels. In the beginning was the word... This is the Son. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some translators would say that the Word was face to face with God. He he was personally in relationship with with the Father. And this is an expression of the Son and the Father relationship in the triune Godhead. So he's with God, and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's eternal. He's God, second person of the Trinity. Then in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's creator God. This is Christ Jesus. And in him was what? Life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light meaning something that's manifested in, that he brings life. He is life itself, and in him is life as the God-man Savior. And that life was meant to be shown into men to give them new life. But what happens in verse 5? And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But men would not believe. I even think of Thomas. He refused to believe at first, till the Spirit of God works in his heart. And in verse 14 in John chapter 1, And the Word became flesh. This is the incarnation. The Son of God from all eternity takes on flesh to be the God-man Savior. And He dwelt among us. And literally that means He tabernacled among us. God came to man to bring man to God. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. He's the Son to the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how John starts his gospel. That seems to be how he's ending his gospel as well in John chapter 20. Even if you look at the very end of John chapter 1, it's wonderful. That's where Jesus uh, sees Nathanael. Actually, he's not there. He's underneath the fig trees calling him as a disciple. And he says in verse 50 to Nathanael, and Nathanael just said, 
You're the son of God. How would you know that I was underneath this fig tree? And how did you know these things about me? And Jesus says to Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Again, the theme of the whole book. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's speaking about Jacob's dream of seeing the, the stairways to heaven and back. And he's saying, I am the mediator. I am the God-man savior. I'm the mediator between God and man. And I came to earth to give my life, then to give life to men to bring them back to heaven, if you will. This is the theme of the whole gospel. And we've mentioned that there's seven I am's, there's seven signs and seven discourses. We already looked at the seven I am's. What are the seven signs that John gives in his gospel? It's not the only miracles. The greatest miracle is his resurrection. But there are seven specific signs that John gives to tell us who Jesus is. You can have these in the notes when I send them to you by email later. You don't have to write these down. But the first sign is he turns water into wine in in John chapter 2 showing that Jesus comes to bring joy and life using the old water pitchers that were used for sacrifices and things. But now it's full of wine and full of life. Then in John chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son. The nobleman says, please come and heal my son. He's dying. And Jesus says, he's healed. Just go to him. He gives life to those who believe. The third sign is he healed the lame man in John chapter 8. 38 years this man was lame and he tells him rise and walk and sin no more. Signifying the life that he's going to give. The fourth sign is he fed the multitude in John chapter 6. And it leads to him claiming to be the bread of life that comes from heaven. And he says take and eat which means believe in me. The fifth sign was he walked on water in John chapter 6. In Matthew's account of that, the disciples, when they saw him walking on water, they said, you are the Son of God. They believed as a result who he was. The sixth sign was he healed the blind man, the man who was blind from birth. And in that conversation with the blind man, he says, do you believe in the Son of God? He said, who is he? Basically, Jesus says, I'm it. Yes, I believe. And not only could he see, but he had new life. And the last sign that John gives is he raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised a man dead to new life. And to his sister, to Lazarus' sister Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see the theme of believing the Son of God for life. And Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Then there are seven discourses in the book of John. The first discourse is the discourse with Nicodemus and related to that about the new birth that he gives in John chapter 3. He brings new life to those who believe. For those who would look at the Son who is lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent. Jesus identified with sinners that those who would look to him would live. The second discourse was the discourse of the water of life in John chapter 4. This Christ gives water springing up into everlasting life. 
The third one is of the divine son. He claims to be the divine son of the father in John chapter 5, where he says he's the source of life and he gives everlasting life to all who would believe. The fifth is the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. And he says, if anyone who believes in him would never thirst, would never be hungry, but have everlasting life and would be raised on the last day. The fifth discourse was that of the life-giving spirit in John chapter 7 where Jesus says, believe in him and out of a new heart then would flow rivers of living water. The sixth discourse is when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He says, if you believe in me, you'll have the light of life. But if you will not believe, you will die in your sins. There's no other hope. And then lastly, there's the good shepherd discourse in John chapter 10. And he says, I came that my sheep may have abundant life. I came to lay down my own life for the sheep and to take it back up again and to give them eternal life that they should never perish. This is the theme of the Gospel of John. I'd like to close by going back to John chapter 14, where we sort of started, where Jesus speaks and Thomas replies in John chapter 14. Again, John chapter 14 is the beginning of Jesus preparing his disciples for the cross and what's going to happen next. And he says in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's the same thing. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But remember, Thomas says, But Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus utters the wonderful truth, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says the way he's talking about is the way to the Father, and that he is the way. In fact, he's the way, the truth, and he is the life as the God-man Savior who must be believed to have new life. Jesus is the way, the only way to the Father. He teaches and he guides us on the way, yes, but he is the way, the only way, and that's in two senses, and we saw that in the latter, latter reference in John chapter 1, verse 51, which was referring to Jacob's dream of angels ascending and descending. He's both the way for God to condescend and dwell with man. Only this way could God be with man by becoming man in the Son. And so it's the way of God coming to man to redeem man, but it's also the other direction. He's the only way for man to come to God and to dwell with God. Jesus is the Son of God who became the Son of Man to live and to die in man's place. His active obedience of the broken law provides the righteousness we must have. His passive obedience to suffer the penalty of our breaking the law provides the propitiation and forgiveness we must have as well. He is the only way. Jesus is the truth and the only truth of the Father. He reveals the truth of who God is and the truth of what God says and what he demands. He's the Son of God who is God, sent by the Father to reveal God to sinful men, to redeem sinful men to himself. And Jesus is the life, which is supposed to be our last point. Jesus is the life. 
the only life of the Father and the only life that man who is dead in sin must have. Men are dead in their sins. They must be raised to newness of life with this life. John says that Jesus is the source of life, chapter 5. He is the giver of life, chapter 6. He is the light of life, chapter 8. He has words of life, chapter 6 again. And this life is abundant life, chapter 10. And he gave up his life unto a cruel death to bear our sins, that he might be raised in newness of life, that we who are hopelessly dead in our sins could be redeemed and raised to new life in him. Won't you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and his works, that believing you might have life in his name? This belief is just what Thomas did. He believed that Jesus was God. He believed that Jesus was the God-man who came to redeem sinners from their sin. He believed in what Jesus did. But it's not just believing that's good. It's a trusting. He trusts his soul to Jesus as his Lord and his God. That's the picture of belief. It's also a continuous belief. Thomas says, I will not believe. And Jesus says, be believing. It's a continuous belief. God gives us the faith we need. And it's a continuous faith that grows in Christ. It's not just a one-time decision. It's a continuous walk with our Lord. And so the invite is to come to the water of life. Jesus, the living one, who offers you mercy, who offers you life more abundant and boundless supply. Come to the Savior who says, come and drink deeply. Come to the fountain without any money. You have nothing to offer God anyway, but the price has been paid in full by Christ Jesus. Come to the well of unmerited favor. Come to Jesus who is a compassionate Savior. Come to the Savior, the God of salvation. Why will you suffer the law's condemnation? Take the free gift of the water of life. Let us pray. Dear Lord, the attempt has been to present Christ in all of his glory and beauty as the Son of God's Savior, who is life itself, who offers life and forgiveness and righteousness to dead sinners who have none. He offers freedom, a relationship with the Father of heaven to those who are enemies of that very God and deserve eternal wrath, a wrath that he has taken in place of those who had come to him. Oh Lord, for those of us who have had the blessing by your grace to be redeemed through this Christ, may we rejoice all the more and drink even more deeply from this water of life. But we beg of you that those who are outside of Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would bow down before the running stream of living water in repentance and faith and know this life of Christ in that eternal and that abundant. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.